0: Well, welcome, ladies. So great to be here with you in the study of the Gospel of John. And I know it's hard to believe, but true. Next week, we will be halfway through this Gospel. And what a rich study, and there's so much more to go. And this Gospel gives a wonderful picture of our Lord's deity, humanity, healing power, and ability to save helpless sinners. Just this past Sunday... The message was from Mark 2 that was taught from the pulpit, and that was the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Someone completely unable to help themselves was healed by the Lord, and one of those completely unable to help themselves accounts is before us today in John 9. So if you haven't yet, turn there with me to John 9 in your Bibles, and we will get started. So our story, ladies, takes place in the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is in the southern portion of the City of David and within the area of the Jerusalem Walls National Park. In 2004, an infrastructure project carried out by a water company uncovered some of the pool's steps. And so the Israel Antiquities people came through, and as a result, the northern perimeter as well as a small section of the eastern perimeter of the pool were uncovered. And many of us, if you've been there to Israel, you have seen that portion. And so that's the picture here that you currently see. But in the news just last month, we heard that though that small section of the pool has been accessible to the public for years, they finally got the okay to excavate the whole thing. So, According to some estimates, the Pool of Siloam is the size of one and a quarter acres, so that would be a little bit smaller than a football field. That's their estimation. So at your Super Bowl party, in a couple of weeks, you can share that fun fact. So this is what they think it originally looked like. That's the estimation. So if you go to Israel in the next couple of years, maybe you'll be able to see the whole thing. Well, we're coming off last week's passage, John 8, where Jesus made another of his I am statements, and he said, I am the light of the world, which is especially important to our story because there is a parallel between physical blindness and spiritual blindness and light and true understanding. Remember, since chapter 7, the hatred from the Jewish authorities toward Christ is intensifying. And we'll see more of that as the Pharisees fall deeper into their pit of darkness and unbelief in the midst of our blind man being rescued, both physically and spiritually, from his dark world. And like Abner Chow said last week, when he mentioned he was kind of doing some overview of the chapters, and he said, John chapter 9, how shall we title that? Who's really blind anyway? That's what he said about it. So, this portion of scripture is a demonstration of the beauty of Christ being the light of the world and relieving the horror of spiritual blindness. So, I hope you come away just much more grateful, ladies, to be called his child and thankful that he's rescued you from something far worse than a physical malady. Far worse than a physical malady. So we have three points in our outline. The blind man meets Jesus, the Pharisees meets the blind man, and the healed man meets his Savior. So let's begin with the blind man meets Jesus. That's John 9, and the scripture is 1 and 2. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born from blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man Or his parents that he was born blind. So the disciples' question is a theological one. They assumed sin was the cause of this man's suffering. And that was the common thought then. The number one reason this happened had to be a result of his personal sin. That can be true, not always, but it can be. We saw it last year, actually, in the book of Numbers. You remember Miriam being stricken with leprosy because she defied Moses' authority. God struck her with a physical ailment because of her personal rebellion. And even in the Gospel of John, back in chapter 5, Jesus warned the man at the pool of Bethsaida that he healed him, but go and sin no more so that nothing worse basically would happen to him. Notice with our disciples' questions, they specifically ask about the parental peace. Was it him or his parents who sinned? They may have been thinking about Exodus 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But the way we need to think about that verse is a wicked generation bleeds into the next generation and the next generation and so on. We've all experienced the overflow of other people's sin. People have experienced the overflow of our sin. So we might have had to suffer because of what our parents did or didn't do. Maybe they had to suffer for what their parents didn't or didn't do. And the list goes on. So the question is not without merit. But Jesus answered and he said in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Of course, they sinned in light of the fact that everybody is born a sinner. Scripture says that. But in the end, all physical problems are a result of the fall, so they are a result of sin. Jesus was just saying this particular case of blindness was not the emphasis. One commentator says, to blame a specific disability on a specific sin committed by a specific person is beyond our ability or authority. Only God knows for his own purpose and glory why he allows deformities as evidenced here, or why he allows something even like stilted speech. When Moses is told by God to go to Egypt and demand the Pharaoh, let his people go, you remember that Moses was more than hesitant, right? He continually tells God, I'm not the man for the job. Exodus 4.11 says this, And Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? And you can apply it to a bigger principal point of how God made each of us. We may sometimes struggle with how God made us physically or emotionally or creatively. Your kids may complain about that. But think about King David's words. You have created me in my inmost being, and the word meaning not only our physical makeup, but our personality, our mental capacity, etc. You are precisely how you are because God made you exactly that way. And it's a matter of trusting God for who we are, even with our disabilities. And Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God, has a great chapter on this whole issue. And he says, did God create you with an incurable speech impediment? He did so because that particular infirmity uniquely fits you for the life he has planned for you. Jerry Bridges himself has no depth perception. I didn't know that, but he has monocular as opposed to binocular vision. So playing tennis, if you have no depth perception, would be a real challenge, right? But he says, but he's right. God's plan for you and his creation of you are consistent. He equipped you to fulfill his purpose for you. I hated my height when I was younger. I have been this tall since I was 14. And you all remember your teenage years and how awkward you felt. And what is the one thing that you do not want to do when you are 14? Stand out, right? And so here I am, taller than all the boys in my high school and half the staff. And why did God make me that way? I'm not, you know, I'm still not really sure, but I do have a theory. But you know, my parents, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so they didn't sit me down and say, well, you are this way because God sovereignly made you this way. I mean, it was more practical than that. It was, you can reach the top shelf at the grocery store, which is not a totally useless skill, by the way, actually. But I have, my theory now that I'm this age is that I can eat an entire box of seized chocolates in two days, and it has somewhere to go. That's my theory. But honestly, we just, you know, I don't know. I still don't know why he made me this height. But it's for his glory, and it's the same with all of us. So in a context of our story, Jesus is going to use this man's ailment as a major object lesson and draw the blind man to faith and highlight his healing power. So John 9, look at verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus only had a short time to fulfill his mission. The night is coming is in a reference to his death. And whenever I study, I usually have like one portion of scripture. Maybe it's a chapter. Maybe it's a verse that just really impacts me and resonates me with me for whatever reason. So out of this whole chapter, what Christ says in this verse has been haunting me. The Lord knew he had three years and diligently redeemed the time. He was always carrying out the work the Father had given him to do. That is a theme. So like I said, the verse has been pressing on me. And when I read this quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, The Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of John, I think I know why it's so weighty and that it was pressing on me. And here's the quote. This saying, this verse, is one which should be remembered by all professing Christians. The life we live... In the flesh is our day. Let us take care that we use it well for the glory of God and the good of our souls. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling while it is called today. There is not work nor labor in the grave toward which we are all fast hastening. Let us pray, read, hear God's word, and do good in our generation. Like men who never forget that the night is at hand. Our time is very short. Our daylight will soon be gone. Opportunities once lost can never be retrieved. Then let us resist procrastination as we would resist the devil. Whatever your hand finds to do, and I added this part, work, ministry, proclaiming the gospel, loving your husband, loving your kids, do it with all your might. The night comes when no man can work. So now the disciples, remember, asked the Lord, who sinned in relation to the blind man? The blind man or his parents? And Jesus says neither. It's so the works of God would be revealed. So Jesus shifts the focus from the cause of this man's blindness to its purpose, which will be his ability to heal this poor, helpless man. Christ knew him, knew his trouble in his anguish. So then we have the account of what happens. Jesus mixed his saliva with clay, anointed the bland, blind man's eyes and told him to wash in the pool. He did and he came back seeing. And then there's this back and forth with some of the people. Is it really the blind man? Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And they asked him what happened and the man told the story. In verse 12, he says, it says, then they said to him, where is he? Meaning Jesus. He said, I do not know. So our next point is the Pharisees meet the blind man. And this is 9, 13 through, and, and proceeding. So let's read that. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received a sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath, Others said, how can a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So we're back to the argument of healing on the Sabbath because it's all they have. Jesus has healed on the Sabbath before. Remember, that was part of the reason is to prove his deity that he is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand and the Pharisees complained because it wasn't lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus said, which one of you wouldn't pull a sheep out of a ditch on the Sabbath? Of course you would, basically. So he says to them in verse 12, therefore, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So their lack of mercy is just stunning. They certainly were not listening to the Lord in Luke 6.36 when he says, be merciful as your father is merciful. So verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said he is a prophet. So the now healed man is starting his journey in the light toward conversion. He tells the Pharisees plainly what happened in his conclusion thus far is that this man is a prophet. Remember the woman at the well back in John 4? She came to that same conclusion first as well. And then she understood him as Messiah and then she proclaimed to her whole town. And we're kind of gonna see the same thing with our blind man and standing up to the religious leaders. So verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. You would think such a miracle would settle Christ's reputation, but it had the contrary effect. This is so interesting. Instead of being embraced as a prophet, he is persecuted as a criminal. And you have this really unreasonable response to this wonderful miracle. And now the Jews are going to put pressure on the parents. Our pastor says of this whole section, unbelief investigates a miracle. So just think of it that way. It's so unreasonable. Why? Because unbelief is investigating the miracle. Verse 19, and they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who has opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Well, the parents are in a dreaded position by Jewish account. They are in fear of losing their business, their social relations, their connection to the synagogue, all of the religious rights, etc. cetera. It's a really a terrible blow in this community. But maybe they should have been thinking about Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 51, 7, and then 12 and 13. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten Yahweh your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth? That should have been the response from the parents. Never mind the people who wind up in the grave. Trust your creator. So here Jesus has done a great kindness and healing their son, so miraculous, but they don't give him credit, they just act against their conscience and what they know is right and good to do. Well, we know this verse so well Fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Proverbs twenty nine, twenty-five. And we have a lot of examples of that in scripture. The lying part um, and the fearing part, Abraham in Genesis 12, 12, you know the story when Abraham and Sarai passed through Egypt and Abraham fears what may happen, which is always a problem because when we imagine what can happen, it's usually the worst case scenario. He feared the Egyptians would see his beautiful wife and kill him to have her This kind of fear is birthed from either, and we all experience this to some level, usually either God won't help me, or he can't help me, or I have to fix the situation. But the Lord proved to Abraham that he was to be trusted. We need to remind ourselves in all of our fear-producing circumstances that God can be trusted. When we have fear of man, we need to think about it rightly. There's this famous saying that I love. It's a really old saying, but speak the truth and shame the devil. You guys know that one? Speak the truth and shame the devil. I wondered where that came from. And it actually was from Hugh Latimer, who is a Oxford martyr. You remember him in 1555 that got burned at the stake, but he recorded it as a common saying in his sermons. And I think we need a resurgence of that because it's absolutely true and it's so succinct. Just speak the truth and shame the devil because we need to be on God's page, not fearing, but on God's page and not fearing man. But when we placate or we skirt around the truth because we want to manipulate for a certain outcome or we fear the circumstances or the consequences, I know it's a hard place to be. But we have to have the courage to do what God requires. And we can all memorize Psalm 27, 1 Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And you moms know how hard it is to kind of comprehend that they rejected what Jesus had done. Basically, even when your kids are adults, when somebody does something like this for them, wouldn't you be just so overwhelmed with joy, so happy that somebody had healed your child? How much gratitude? How indebted would you be to the person If your son or daughter was in a wheelchair and then all of a sudden they're up and walking, completely healed. But that's how bad the fear was that held them back. And it's incredibly sad that that's the route that they chose to take. We'll see more of the problem in John 12 42. It says, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. So as Gentiles, I know we don't really fear being put out of the synagogue today, but certainly if you're a Jewish person and you come to faith, you still have to deal with that. You have a backlash from the Jewish community. You have your own family, and that can be very serious and very difficult to deal with depending on how devout they are. However, these days, aligning with Christ on American soil... Is beginning to show the signs of things that we've seen elsewhere in the world. A praying coach gets suspended from his job. You won't wear the colors in support of the gay community, you run the risk in some places of getting suspended or fired. You stand for truth, you're canceled, and called a bigot, etc. So the cost of following Christ is no, it's just not as far removed from our lives as it was maybe even 20 years ago. But Yahweh is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life, of whom shall I dread? This account is also illustrative of the fallout that Jesus says will be true regarding the cost of discipleship, that his coming will possibly tear apart or divide a family. Luke 12:53 says, they will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There is a chasm between the healed man and his parents. They've chosen their side and it's to placate the Jewish leaders. Many of you know this particular heartache being a Christian may have caused a separation in your relationship. Maybe it's with your parents, or your siblings, or your kids, or your spouse. But perhaps in the mind of our healed man, he thought of Psalm 27.1. Yahweh is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life, whom shall I dread? And then to drop down to verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but Yahweh will take me up. So continuing with our account, let's read on in verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. So saying give God the glory was just a way of saying, confess your sin, tell the truth, and this miracle must be fraudulent. Again, trying to discount what Jesus had done. So from our now healed man, we have a monumental statement that has come down through the ages, most commonly sung in the song Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I mean, unbelievers know that verse, right? They could, they could sing it. But it is what every believer is able to say. I once walked in darkness, but the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart. I walked in darkness, but now I have the light of life. I once was blind, but now I see. And when you get saved, God does take a veil off, off of your eyes and things look sometimes physically different. I know that happened to me. Perhaps that happened to you. When I got saved, kind of that, that weak um continuing on. I was going to the same job. I was seeing the same people. I was eating the same lunch, but everything looked different. Why? Because I was different. It was me that was different. My eyes had been, the veils had been taken off, and now I could truly see. That salvation produces a radical change in your heart and life. So verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. They reviled him. And I think about this one guy, and I don't know how many angry Pharisees were standing around him. But the word revile means to heap abuse upon. And they're saying, well, we're from pristine stock because we're from the line of Moses. Sounds a little like what we heard in the last chapter when the Pharisees said, our father is Abraham claiming that superiority. So they say, you are following. Who who did they say this man was following? What's their estimation of Jesus by by this time? He has a demon, he's crazy, he's insignificant, and he's a blasphemer. Even though Jesus said, I find this really interesting, back in John 5, 45 through 46, he said, do not think that I will accuse you to the father, The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So now our healed man is fully engaged in this debate. And it's like the point in the movie where the hero or the protagonist stands up to the bully and everybody cheers. And I have this system, kind of this tiered system, might sound a little bit strange, but I don't know, maybe you feel this way too, but I have like, when you get to heaven, all the people you want to meet, you know, you have like your first tier, second tier, third tier, you know, Jesus and God. Um, and then, I don't know, Abraham and and uh, Peter and, and John and uh, Elijah. And then I have my third tier, like Rahab and King Josiah and the blind man because I love the blind man. You know why? This guy has such gumption. I can't find, except for Jesus, and the disciples once they're fully formed, and maybe John the Baptist, anybody that stands up to the Pharisees and gives them the what for. But our blind guy, our now healed man, he does. And it's so great to see. But the healed man's boldness should be the rule for every believer, not the exception if you were blind and now you see if God has brought you from death to life, you're not afraid to tell everybody that truth. Not only bold, but fearless. And people can refute your gospel presentation or the veracity of the word, or they can argue that God doesn't even exist if they want to, but they can't argue with your personal experience. That doesn't mean that you don't give somebody the gospel. Of course you do. But you always have a segue. You always have a segue. If you can talk about, what the Lord has done in your life, how he has saved you, and how he has taken you from blindness to light. Well, the gift of sight made our healed man unstoppable in his response to the Pharisees. And the gift of salvation should do the same for us. If we really considered how blind we were, how helpless we were in that condition, how the only one who could heal this man physically and spiritually was the one true God, and the same with us, I think we would be more joyous about our salvation. It should be, ladies, as though we were actually physically blind, and we'd been given sight. I mean, think about that, right? And you can just even think about the example in your own life. How excited are you to tell somebody if you're now cancer-free, right? Or your surgery has gone well, whatever, you're shouting that from the rooftops. You can't wait to get on the phone and say, I just got this great report. I'm cancer-free. But sometimes we stop short of telling people about the most incredible miracle, and that's that we've been saved from sin and been given the eyes to see. Our writer of this gospel, John, also wrote, 1 John, in 1 John 1.1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. First-hand account. Jesus is real, and he's true, and it made the apostles bold. Acts 4, when Peter and John were warned by the Sanhedrin, don't talk about Jesus, don't even say his name. Verse 19 says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about, we have, about what we have seen and heard. People who are truly born again and have an encounter with Christ cannot stop speaking about what God has done for them and how he has transformed them. If he has transformed you, are you speaking about that transformation to other people? So our healed man in verse 31, it says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that someone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Simple, perfect, spot on theological truth. The premise being, as evidenced in scripture, God listens to the God-fearing righteous man, but not prideful evil men. Job 35, 12 says, 12 and 13, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty perceive it. God hears the righteous, and the healed man makes his point by saying God had to have heard Jesus because He gave him the ability to open this man's eyes. No one has ever done that. Our healed man has completely shut down the argument and the Pharisees have nowhere to go. Well, what happens then? We all know what happens at that point, right? When there's nowhere to go in this kind of argument, what's the only thing left for them to do? Personal insults. So verse 34, they answered and said to him, you are completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. So interesting. This is contrary to what Jesus said when the disciples asked, Remember at the beginning of the chapter? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus directed the question past that to what he would do for the Father's glory. The Pharisees are always doing the opposite, saying the opposite, constant contradictions. And it's so fitting that they would cast this kind of insult at this man. You were born blind, you wretched, sinful wretch, is what they're saying to him. But Jesus had told his disciples, that's not the point of this man's ailment. It's for me to give the father glory. But you know what? This is not new. This type of unbelief has plagued the Jews from the Old Testament on. Historically, their unbelief has kept them, remember, from possessing the land. They became idol worshipers. God had to judge them over and over for their unbelief. Remember last year in Numbers, an entire generation refused to take the land because of unbelief and what happened then. Numbers 14, 11, Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe me despite all the signs which I have done in their midst? Sound a little familiar? All the signs that Jesus has done in their midst. Think about that. God gave them 40 years of wandering as a consequence. We have seen Jesus heal, heal many, many people, feed the 5,000, even more than that, but still, so many didn't believe. His brothers didn't believe. People watched him heal every kind of affliction, cast out demons, but still, so many locked in willful unbelief. But whenever I come across this word unbelief, I always feel compelled to look at my own reactions and ask where I'm suffering from unbelief. I talk about this a lot. As believers, you ladies know we all have pockets where unbelief is revealed. Maybe not unbelief where salvation is concerned, but maybe believing God's power in our circumstances or doubting his love for us, or maybe we don't quite believe his call to be obedient. Maybe, not really. Ask yourself where you see unbelief peeking out of your own heart and ask God to pour light into those crags to strengthen you. Last week in my group, we were talking about the properties of light, and this is kind of neat that as a wave, light can expand and radiate in all directions. It can bend around corners. It carries energy and momentum, and the speed of light, of course, is the fastest that anything in the universe is able to move. And I love how Abner Chow last week reminded us that light always overcomes the darkness. Isn't that hopeful? And how fitting that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. So they cast out our healed man, and he is the first person known to have been put out of the synagogue because of belief in Christ. He suffered the fate that his parents were hoping to avoid. But as that man was turned away by the religious leaders, he turned to the one who healed him, the one who became his savior. And that's our last point. The healed man meets his savior. So this is verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? Monumental statement. And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him And it is he who was talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. So Jesus seeks him out. He heard they cast him out of the synagogue and he went to find him. Our Lord knows every single time that we have spoken about him or given a gospel witness in defense of the faith or been faithful. I love this. He keeps accounts of all our losses, crosses, and persecutions. So the healed man is unjustly excluded and put out by men, but he is about to get the greatest inclusion possible. Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus finds him, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Verse 35. So quiz, ladies, why did John write his gospel? So that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and believing that they may have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. So this guy is about to get life in his name. And the word believe is to think to be true and to have confidence in. So Jesus asked this, it's personal, it's confrontive, it calls for a response. And we would call this the anatomy of a true conversion. The healed man shows belief, obedience, and worship. And a few weeks ago, one of your questions that you had in the lesson in John 7 had to do with true saving faith. You remember that one, and you were kind of asked to say, what is the difference between maybe knowing that Jesus existed or thinking maybe, you know, he's a historical figure and being churched and understanding the facts, but truly knowing and loving him and having true saving faith and that those are different things. And a couple of the things that we listed in that would be obedience and worship as evidence of true saving faith. So our healed man says, Lord, I believe. And in the church age, we have this great uh, scripture in Romans ten nine through 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. So the healed man recognizes Christ as the object of saving faith. And the Spirit of God has opened his eyes and brought him in in his sovereign plan. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Everyone that the Father gives him, he receives. But on the flip side, with most of the Pharisees and a ton of the crowd who were following Jesus around, blindness is used, again, as a metaphor to show Man's inability to understand divine truth. People have eyes but they do not see. Isaiah 43, 8, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. And I looked up blindness, and the first instance of blindness, especially being illustrated and certainly paralleling spiritual blindness, is in the book of Genesis, when the angels struck the men, groping at the door, attempting to get inside of Lot's house to commit horrible, perverted acts. Is that not an example of the depth of spiritual blindness? All the way to Revelation 3.17. Because you say, this is to the congregation at Laodicea, because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked, from Genesis to Revelation. But the design of the gospel is to spiritually open men's eyes. Acts twenty six eighteen, when Paul recounts his conversion, he says, when Jesus spoke to him and commissioned him to go to the Gentiles and open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So to finish our chapter, look at verse 39. And Jesus said, "'For judgment I have come into this world, "'that those who do not see may see, "'and that those who see may be blind.' "'Then some of the Pharisees who were with him "'heard these words and said to him, "'Are we blind also?' "'And Jesus said to them, "'If you were blind, you would have no sin. "'But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains.'" If they would have acknowledged their spiritual darkness, they would have come to Jesus for forgiveness, but they didn't. They didn't. They rejected Christ. Our blind man listened, obeyed, acknowledged, received, and worshiped. Pharisees, different set of circumstances. So your sin remains carries with it finality. This is very chilling. In the MacArthur commentary, he says, this is a little like Matthew 15, when Jesus told, was told by his disciples that some of the Pharisees were offended by his words. He replied, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if the blind man guides a blind man, both fall into a pit. Those three shocking words our pastor says, let them alone, reveals that God will sometimes judge directly unrepentant sinners by abandoning them or even hardening them in their unbelief. I think of Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. And I think of Romans 1, aren't we all so familiar with that chapter these days? God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, abandoned them, it's the wrath of abandonment and i noticed that i had written in my commentary on the side of that paragraph i wrote no lord please don't let it be so because the concept is so frightening so stark and awful to think about being abandoned left alone without hope and god in the world everyone is without hope and god in the world until they are born again so the healed man was cast out from the synagogue but brought into the fold of God. After the scripture before us, we never meet him again, but we will in heaven. One commentator says, we hope he was able to win his fearful parents to the Lord. Yes, we are. And perhaps you are here this evening, maybe you're fearful, like the blind man, his parents, and you don't want to commit, your life to Christ for what it might cost you. Or perhaps you're like the Pharisees who didn't think that their sin was so bad. They didn't need a savior because it's not so bad. It's not so awful before a holy God. But today you have heard the words of God from the Bible and he calls you to listen, to hear, to obey, and to worship so that he may fill you with his marvelous light. And if that's the case, pray for the removal of your blindness. Psalm 13.3 says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Ask Jesus for the grace that he gives from John 8.12 last week. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Ask him for that light to follow him, that you may no longer walk in darkness and be separated from him, for an eternity in hell, because that is the end result of walking in darkness. So if you are a believer here tonight, ladies, Matthew five fourteen through 16 says, you are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, what a wonderful portion of scripture, of Jesus's healing power and his call to salvation. So I just pray that we consider our standing before Christ, the light of the world, and that we will reflect him and love him more. And I really hope that this picture has helped you to see how thankful we need to be that we've been rescued from spiritual blindness. We don't realize how deep and dark it truly is. And then here's Jesus shedding his magnificent light into our hearts, and we need to understand that spiritual condition that he has rescued us from. So John 10 next week, we'll hear a lot more about that rescue, and then Jesus is going to talk about being the good shepherd, and we'll see how dependent we are on the good shepherd as his sheep. So let me just close us in prayer. Lord, thank you for your light and salvation. May we go forward in our discussion groups to rejoice in what you have done for us. And always, always, to you be the glory. Bless each and every heart here. Amen.